Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to another edition of Deep State Radio. I'm your host, David Rothkoff, in an undisclosed location in New York City, and I'm very pleased to be joined by um, several great guests, including for the first time, Lena Wen, who is uh, an emergency uh, physician, a public health professor, was the Commissioner of Public Health of Baltimore. Welcome, Lena. Thank you very much. Glad to join you today. And we also have with us, of course, because it's Thursday, my Thursday co-host, Ryan Goodman. Um, how are things in Brooklyn, Ryan? Uh Things are eh in Brooklyn. It's a lot of uh, sirens these days in Brooklyn. You know, I can, I can, I can well imagine. Um, and in Washington D.C., our old friend and regular of these podcasts for geez, like five years, if you count the one that was before this one, Ed Luce. <laughs> Um Hi, Ed. Hi, David. Hi, all. Um, uh, I'm I'm going to start with a kind of non sequitur questions for each one of you and then i'm going to weave them together in a masterful display of hostship um or not um but uh lena let, let me start with something that just struck me i you know i'd like everybody else i'm following twitter i've went on twitter i saw you on msnbc it's like you know a lot of information coming in but one thing struck and that is that the United States has 4.25% of the world's population. And as of about now, it has 25% of the coronavirus cases, which is five times what we should have. Um, there are other countries that are above, punching above their weight, Italy, Spain, so forth. Why? And David, these are the numbers that we know of. And I think that's important to emphasize every time we talk about the number of deaths or the number of individuals who are infected, that's what we know of. And we actually know that there are many more cases out there that we just don't know because of inadequate What's 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 the figure you use in your head to adjust it to what you think it really is? Because I've heard everything from 3X to 10X. I wouldn't want to hazard a guess because of the following. One is we haven't had testing, so we don't know. And two is that there are a lot of people who are asymptomatic, who are carrying the virus and transmitting it to others, but just don't know. And we don't know what that percentage is. It might be as high as 50% of people who have COVID-19 don't know. But we are definitely orders of magnitude off. And that's where we are now. And I think the frightening thing is if we project out a week or two weeks at the rate that we're going, 
we're not going to just be at where we are now percentage wise of the world in terms of percent in percentage of what, as you were saying, David, how we punch above our weight. We're going to be punching far above that weight, if you will, in a few weeks time based on the trajectory of where we're going. And the sad thing is all of this was preventable and is still preventable if we do the right thing now. Yeah, our trajectory, if you look at all those charts that show the climb of the disease, has been to the left of everybody else on, on those charts, the steepest and to the left. Um, and that's you know one of the things that I think we want to drill down to as we go on here. But let me, let me go on with my opening questions because I think I'm going to ask one that's going to sound like a non sequitur, but I think it picks up actually on Lena's last point, Ryan. Um, but we've just learned from the Secretary of the Navy that the captain of the USS Teddy Roosevelt, Captain Crozier, who essentially blew the whistle and said, look, I've got these guys on board who've got coronavirus. We've got to pull into port. Um, I've got a problem and it's not being dealt with. It's gotten canned. He, he did the right thing and he's, he's gotten canned. And of course, this is symptomatic. You know, governors who ask for too much are told they're ungrateful and they don't get what they want. Uh, it's consistent with whistleblowers during the impeachment who would say, here's something that went wrong. And, and then, you know, they would be out of a job real quickly. Um, but of course, it's one thing to do that during an impeachment. It's, it's wrong. Um, but when you're in the midst of an epidemic like this and you send a message that if you blow the whistle, if you cause attention to be brought to a, a problem area, we're going to fire you. Seems to me that's at least a, a, a one of the reasons that could be at the root of what Lena was talking about. Right. So, um, yeah, I read the NBC report, and there hasn't yet been an official statement as to what the just you know stated justification is. So it's difficult to assess what at least might be their uh, public claim as to why he would be fired. But even if there's some basis for some kind the, of the rationale, the rationale that has been given so far is uh, that he was leaked behind the leak of the letter. But that's right. That's just we've heard so far. Okay. Um, so I, I do think that even if there is an infraction that he committed, you would think that in this moment he should be valorized, um, and the infraction wouldn't be a cause for this kind of a firing. And I do think it sends a signal because that's what the that's the broad signal um, that would be sent. And I think this is a perennial concern within the way in which Trump is running uh, the coronavirus operation. And it sounds as though Adam Schiff is very concerned about this. He's given interviews very recently saying he's trying to investigate or trying to understand if this is part of the problem that uh, if those if people are critical of uh, Trump, he shuts them out. If governors are critical, they don't get their resources because they haven't shown the right kind of appreciation for him. And I do think this even goes to other questions as to why it is pertinent that even today we look back at retrospectively what mistakes were made in the past because we need this um, administration to own the mistakes and move through them. And if you don't own the mistakes, but instead you try to deep six the people that are bringing it up, 
it means that you're going to run into more and more of them. It's just not a way to lead through a crisis. If anything, they would want to have this kind of information come from people and uh, doing it in ways that might not be as traditional as in the past because we are in a crisis situation. So I do think, to me, I'm thinking about this in a broader context of why we want to know about um, actions by the administration that left us less prepared, uh, which then dovetails back to, I think, your initial question and then Lena's response about where we are at with the numbers and what might be behind why the United States is so off kilter uh, compared to other countries. You know, it's, you, you bring up a really important point, a broader point that, that goes to crisis management and leadership. And as you were saying it, I was actually thinking of Donald Trump and his, this tick that he's used several times in the past three years that I find sticks in my craw more than most of them when he compares himself to George Washington. Um, but, you know, one of the things that strikes me about George Washington and, and one of the things that's kind of a critique of him by some people who read about George Washington um, is that as, a, as an officer, Washington lost a number of battles and his specialty became retreat. You know, at the, at the, he knew when to pull back. He knew when to regroup and he knew, you know, how to use that to reassess the enemy and, and ultimately to succeed. And of course, there are hundreds of other examples of that from leaders throughout history. But it, it really does require an openness to acknowledging mistakes and learning from those mistakes. Now, there's some mistakes that are assessments that are in the moment. And then there are other mistakes that are, um, assess, that are associated with ideological positions. And Ed, uh, you had a great column in the Financial Times today um, uh, talking about w one of those areas where there is an ideological issue that has turned into a crucial vulnerability for the United States, particularly in this case. And I thought maybe we could begin with you talking about that a little bit. Um, thanks. It's a, it's a very good question. I mean, I tried to address it in that column. It, 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 I was kind of spurred to do so by reading a piece a few days ago by Francis Fukuyama in the Atlantic Monthly, in which he said, look, the dividing line here between how societies are coping with the coronavirus is not between autocracies and democracies. Um, it's between competent governments and incompetent governments. And, and competent governments, those that acted early and effectively, tend to be ones that where their, their citizenry has a high trust in government has some faith in you know, what they're officially being told. And examples of that would include Singapore, Norway, Germany, um, Taiwan. Um, and examples of low trust and incompetent governments would include China and the United States and Italy and Britain. Um, uh, and uh, that I find to be a much better um, way of explaining the very variegated um, responses you've seen to this pandemic. Um, around the world. In terms of Trump, Trump's, you know, grotesque um, self-analogies with George Washington and indeed with Abraham Lincoln, which sticks slightly more in my craw even than the Washington one. Um, what this lesson should be teaching him is that when he was warned in January by the intelligence agencies um, and by government scientists that 
there was an oncoming uh, epidemic and he should do this, that and the other to prepare for it. And when he ignored them and repeatedly resorted to wishful thinking and tried to talk the stock market up and tell them this wasn't a problem, this is contained, he should have learned from this um, a, a trope I use in my column that you should close the barn door before the horse has bolted. And unfortunately, America, you know, has, has along with Italy, Britain and others, waited until the horse is uh, clear of the barn before closing the door. And we're seeing that at the micro level too, with Florida this week, very belatedly, Georgia, very belatedly, um, Mississippi and others imposing shelter in place orders two, three weeks after the rate of infections in their states says they should have. And even then, um, making exceptions for churches, exceptions for places where people congregate, um, which to my mind, you know, I have nothing against believers. My, you know, my, my mother is a deacon in the Church of England. Um, uh, I mean, I'm an agnostic myself. I have nothing against people with religious faith, but to make an exception for churches is to profoundly um, breach the trust that the public have placed in you, which, which as a governor or as a president is to protect your citizens. Um, so, you know, America is, is failing this, this barn door test, as is my own Britain. And I would hope but have very little expectation that Trump will learn from that to listen to expertise. Well, of course, he hasn't shown any propensity for that. And in fact, he has shown the opposite. He seems not to be, um, he seems to be allergic to criticism, as we discussed. He seems to be allergic to facts that might embarrass him, and that's why he suppressed testing at the beginning. Uh, he carries forward an ideology that the Republican Party has carried forward for 40 years, that government is bad, less government is, is, is good. And then, you know, we have... The stories in Politico yesterday and one in the New York Times right now about how he has turned in this crisis to the noted public health scholar Jared Kushner. Um, and in, in, in the New York Times article, there is a line <laughs> which has got to go down as one of the great lines of description of this administration, in which he says, the senior official described the Kushner team as a frat party that descended from a UFO and invaded the, <laughs> which is the federal government, which is like, you know, you hear it, you think, yeah, yeah. That, that's the opposite of expertise, right? You know, that's embracing ignorance because you're comfortable with the ignorance. And so to me, Lena, you know, all of this brings us back to, to what you were talking about. You know, we have a sort of, pathology of government here. All the things you don't want to see in a government in a crisis like this, ignoring warnings, ignoring expertise, suppressing data, suppressing um, criticism, uh, making no effort to learn from mistakes, uh, discounting the value of the tools that you have, embracing ignorance. I mean, you take all those things together and I'm not sure which is worse, the virus or the response to the virus? Mm. You know, I followed COVID-19 from the time that it was first being reported in China. And I hate to say it, but there are a lot of parallels between what's happening with the U.S. response 
and what happened initially with the Chinese response. I will say initially, because I actually think they've done a pretty good job since. But in the beginning, we saw doctors on the front lines who were raising concerns. And we saw these doctors being censored and, um, and being told that they had to retract their comments and, um, and they were not believed. And then we saw a lot of other doctors who were showing what happened when they didn't have personal protective equipment, who were getting garbage bags and rain ponchos and wearing those and wearing diapers all day because they only had one protective suit and they couldn't afford to go to the bathroom. I mean, it was so horrific to see these images. I guess I never thought that that could happen in the US. And yet it is. I mean, we look to the government as here. I would hope that we look to public officials as our source of accurate, trusted information. And in times of crises, we look to our leaders to tell us what they know, what they don't know, and what actions are they going to be taking to find out what they don't know. We look to our leaders to listen to the people so that if the frontline healthcare workers are saying, we don't have enough ventilators, we don't have enough masks, we don't have enough supplies, we don't expect our leaders to say, no, actually, I think you're hoarding these supplies. I don't believe you. What's wrong with you? I just can't believe that this is happening in the U.S. as it did in China. And the piecemeal response that um, Edward was just talking about, too, um, I think also is quite unbelievable, too, because one could imagine at the beginning of the, of, of, um, of the outbreak, and I actually wrote a piece about this for, for the Washington Post. I wrote a piece about how there was a lot of finger pointing at the Trump administration at the beginning. But I think a lot of those things at the beginning were hard to anticipate. And they chose one direction, and maybe they should have chosen another one, but it might not have been their fault at that time because in times of crises, you have to make a decision because you just do, there's not much time and you have to choose one way or another. But I think ever since that point, from January onward, we knew what was the right thing to do. And the fact that we're not doing those things, that's a major problem. We know that social distancing is what needs to be done. We know stay at home orders are what needs to be done. We know that ordering these supplies are critical and that's what has to happen. And the administration's failure to do them, but even to acknowledge the seriousness of these actions, frankly, it makes it worse than what we saw in China at the beginning of this pandemic. Hey, listeners, if you haven't already, you might want to check out and subscribe to Eurasia Group Foundation's new podcast, None of the Above. It offers new ideas and answers to America's most pressing foreign policy questions. Increasingly, as you know, everyday American voters feel that their preferences are not accurately reflected in Washington. They find themselves dissatisfied with the status quo. None of the above is designed to offer something different. The host, Mark Hanna, interviews global thinkers, journalists, and activists on the issues we care most about. You'll hear in-depth conversations with foreign policy luminaries like our friend Stephen Wald, as well as some less usual suspects like uh, Cal Penn or Andrew Basovich. None of the above is produced by the Eurasia Group Foundation, a nonprofit founded by Ian Bremmer and dedicated to helping people make meaning out of the impact that geopolitics has on their lives and bringing non-traditional voices into the national conversation about foreign policy and national security. So 
Uh, give a listen to None of the Above, uh, a very interesting new podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. You know, I think one of the distinctions, and I certainly don't want to defend the Chinese on this, because not only did they uh, respond slowly and uh, take a page out of their faulty SARS playbook at the outset and try to suppress information about this and punish people for bringing it out. Um, uh, but, you know, they all, there are also stories of physicians and whistleblowers. They're just disappearing, right? So, you know, the Chinese, the t- Chinese response was horrible, although our president defended it yesterday. But what the Chinese did at the moment the penny dropped is they said, we have a public health crisis. We're going to deal with this public health crisis by taking measures to mitigate it. Shut down cities, keep people in their homes, et cetera, et cetera. Build hospitals quickly and so forth. But Ryan, I still get the feeling that what the federal government here in the United States thinks it has is a PR problem. And what they're trying to do with weekly or daily press conferences is is get ahead of the PR. I mean, yesterday we saw the White House roll out a press conference on drugs at the border. I mean, which had nothing to do with this. Um, but, you know, I, the president wanted to have some guys in uniform standing next to him, and he wanted to look decisive, and he made some loose connection between this and the virus. Um, and, and frankly, whenever Bill Barr appears, I assume some civil liberty will fall soon after. And so I saw in this, you know, this kind of worrisome kind of foreshadowing of this administration going a little bit or farther down the road that, say, the Hungarian administration went, where you use the crisis to actually, you know, constrain democracy, undermine the rule of law, and so forth. And you could see them say, it's an emergency at the border. We're shutting down the borders. We have troops at the border, et cetera. And they've been trying to do this for a couple of weeks. But they also are, you know, doing this thing the past couple of weeks. You know, there were, you know, a few days ago, um, you, you'd turn on the TV and there would be all these folks in the media going, oh, Trump's tone was so much more sensitive and somber. He's really learning his lesson here. Um, and that's because he'd obviously come out of a meeting where somebody said, look, if you don't do this stuff, hundreds of thousands of people, maybe millions of people will die in the United States of America. But they immediately pivoted to, well, if we had done nothing, two million people would die. So 100,000 deaths is a good outcome. And it, I, don't, I don't sense in, in his response or, or any of this compassion or um, a, you know, concern about people per se. He's concerned about the numbers and how they translate into electoral numbers. And so I think, Ryan, this is an additional problem, which is you've got a government that views it, at, at least at the highest level, as a PR problem um, and has it's just simply resistant to addressing it you know, from the perspective of science and being a public health problem. So I think, I, th- I think that's right. And I just to tie the two pieces together, I, I do think that there's something very significant was happening at yesterday's press conference. And then there's some inklings of it before where um, the president is trying to frame this as a win if, as you said, David, if only 
one hundred two hundred thousand people die because hey, that's compared against if you'd done nothing, if you just thrown up done nothing, then two point two million is what the models say uh, would be the number of American deaths. And uh, Kate Brandon had tweeted something even a week before I think it is several days before where she said like the president wants a ticker tape parade of a hundred thousand Americans die, <laughs> which is really trying to frame it in this um, very political way. And I also think, so I think that that's happening. I also wonder about like, what is the policy justification behind the failure to take certain actions? Then honing in on what uh, Lena had said after January, like what is the policy justification for still putting on the brakes on using the Defense Production Act? What is the policy justification for not telling all the governors to issue stay-at-home orders. And I unfortunately, and I'm still, you know, I'm not there yet, but I unfortunately think that the best explanation might be that he, that the president does not want to take responsibility for it because if it goes badly, it's really on him. If, if, if we understand that it's not private companies and what they do or don't do, but it's the federal government that has taken ownership of it through the Defense Production Act to try to mobilize the economy to deal with the crisis. If it's on the president saying everybody needs to be nationwide under these uh, stay at home orders and other things like it, it is all on him. And I, I think that that's right. And in fact, there's a great article in the New York Times earlier this week, just a couple of days ago, they show the hundreds of thousands of times, hundreds of thousands of times that the Trump administration has invoked the Defense Production Act in other contexts, like to get body armor to um, folks who are policing the southern border, but not to get <laughs> the equivalent of armor to PPE to frontline nurses and physicians. So why is it if they've actually invoked the DPA for other matters? And it's in that very New York Times article, they speculate. They say there might be politics behind why he's not do, has not done it, has been so hesitant to do it with the Defense Production Act, because otherwise it's on him. And, 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 oh no, go on. And, I, yeah, and it dovetails with when he was asked the question in the outside the White House, do you take any responsibility for the failure to do testing and control? No, I take no responsibility. And, I, and that's deeply unsettling um, as a way of managing the crisis now that we have all the information, now that we have the somber president, now that we have the graphs coming out of the White House that show just how extremely bad the situation is surely to goodness now should be the time to be utilizing all the measures that we have at our disposal at the federal level. Yeah, no, and I think you're absolutely right. And I think one of the things that we've seen is that the president has engaged in what you might call sort of excuse shopping. You know, he's been throwing out excuses to see what works. Who could have predicted this? No one's ever seen this before. The Chinese are responsible for this. Um, these governors should have ordered these supplies well in advance. The governors are responsible for this. Obama's responsible for this, um, et cetera, et cetera. And, uh, you know, we inherited a bad system. And none of these things seem to be sticking. And I think the problem with his anything less than, you know, a million or two million deaths is a victory, is that at some point we're going to get to the end of this um, in, in many, many months, and we're going to have the data. And it's going to be possible to reverse model the data and say, had we instituted these measures, this is how many lives would have been saved. And there's just going to be a hard number. And it's, it's, you know, it's, the, it's the converse of what, he, what he's getting at. But let me shift the focus because it's, you know, sometimes I feel like, you know, we're just piling on the Trump administration because 
you know, they've, they've earned it, right? But, but there's another side of this. This is a, a human tragedy, million cases of this in the world now, quarter of a million cases in the United States. Um, you know, Ed, on our, on our Monday show, at, at one point I observed that we were just passing the number of deaths that were associated with 9-11 on Monday during the show. It's now Thursday. We are passing, just as this broadcast being recorded, two times the number of deaths that took place on 9-11. Three days later, we are passing that number. We are clearly seeing an acceleration here. We've seen unemployment um, filings last week and this week totaling 10 million people who are out of work. And it's very likely that over the course of the month ahead, um, and your former boss colleague Larry Summers was just saying this, it's going to be a multiple of that. It's going to be 30, 40, St. Louis Fed predicts 47 million people unemployed. So you have death, you have suffering, you have 47 million Americans unemployed, huge amount of economic anxiety um, in this country. Um, and one thing that strikes me, and I'm going to throw this out, and then I'm going to turn to uh, Lena for her perspective on this as a, as a former um, city uh, public health commissioner. But, but Ed, you know, as bad as it is in Italy, as bad as it is in Spain, no one in Italy or Spain is worried about whether their health care is going to get paid for. No yeah. one in Italy or Spain is worried that they're going to lose their job and there will be no support from their government. Most of the countries in Europe have focused on income replacement. You know, in the United States, they're going to get 1200 bucks, maybe, maybe starting in two weeks. And maybe if they haven't filed the right forms with the government, maybe not for five months. So, you know, not only do we have this disease, but we have this social crisis because we don't have the mechanisms of, you can look at it as resilience or humanity within our country that every other developed country in the world has. Yeah, the, what economists call the shock absorber um, that most other Western economies and many East Asian economies have in the form of um, countervailing payments, welfare payments um, uh, to workers who've fallen on hard times is mostly absent in the United States. And therefore, the onus is on very impressive, very large scale um, fiscal uh, stimuli, or I mean, better, better um, term would be disaster relief to make up for the absence of that shock absorber in the United States. And the first round, first round was heavily weighted towards corporate assistance rather than towards uh, employees. I mean, what we want to see higher, higher unemployment, horrible though it might sound, we want to see the economy go into a coma. Um, that's, that's the price of um, enforcing social distancing. So uh, in order to ensure that we're in a coma without threat to our lives. We, we need to have proper security and payments um, to people who can't telework. And that is three quarters of the labor force. And we haven't got that at the moment. Um, we've got another 3.5 million people in the last week alone have lost their health insurance. 
Um, now, if they are living in democratic states, they can fall back on Medicaid. Um, but if they're living in most Republican states, um, the, uh, the governors there have refused uh, Medicaid for ideological reasons. Um, what's going to happen to them? Just this week, uh, the Trump administration refused to uh, reopen healthcare.gov to allow people to take out insurance on the, um, the federal um, exchange, the Obamacare exchange, again, for ideological reasons. Um, so I, I think the absence of a shock, shock absorber is going to, going to produce one of two things. Either America is going to have to go back to work far too early at the risk of unnecessary risk to many, many lives, or else Congress is going to have to come back and produce a genuine um, a package of economic security for those who can't telework. Um, and I have to say, given the sort of uh, um, worsening um, body language of Mitch McConnell and the president towards what Nancy Pelosi is suggesting, I, I, I'd give fairly low odds for um, disaster relief part two um, um, being the kind of package we need. So we're heading towards, a, you know, we're not just going through a pandemic here. We're, we're in a crisis of American capitalism. I know that sounds like a cliche. Um, we, you know, the term crisis of capitalism is thrown, thrown about far too much, but we are. That's, that's exactly what we're heading into. Um, and, and it's very worrying. Well, it's the greatest unemployment crisis in American history. Goldman Sachs says the economy will shrink by over 6% this year, that it shrunk in the last quarter by over 25%. That's the biggest contraction uh, in the U.S. economy since the end of World War II, when we were downsizing from a war economy, um, uh, and prior to that, since the Great uh, Depression. It's clearly the biggest public health crisis since 1918. Uh, in this country. And frankly, if you take the public health crisis and the economic crisis and you add them together, you've got a social crisis that, you know, other than 1918 and the Civil War, it's kind of hard to match in 240 years of U.S. history in terms of the breadth of its consequences, the number of people uh, touched. I, I would add one other thing um, because I can't help it, but, you know, I, I, I think if you go to a phase four Inter intervention or and, and possibly one after that, which seems likely in the run-up to an election, you might end up seeing this government spend four, five, six trillion dollars in bailout and, and response. And the next government's going to have to spend another couple of trillion. And all, all I can think of is that, you know, uh, when Bernie Sanders and, and Elizabeth Warren were up in the debate stage and they said, we need national health care for everybody to protect them in times like this, people said, that's crazy. That'll cost $20 trillion over 10 years or 15 years. And we're going to spend it in six months because we didn't have it. And, you know, it, it, it needs to be noted. But let me go, you know, Lena, to, to, you know, you, you experienced as, as, as public health commissioner in Baltimore. And what Ed is talking about, what we're talking about here, are contributing factors to how a government deals with this. There's an epidemiological consequence if people don't have health care and they won't go to the doctor because they don't have health care. And what you're trying to do is to know who's got the disease and keep them from being in circulation. There's an epidemiological consequence if they can't afford it. 
There is a consequence for the spread of the disease, as Ed was noting. If your ideology says, let's keep the churches open, or, you know, you know this, this is a democratic hoax. The president was calling the democratic hoax. And so you have sort of slow on the uptake governors like Ron DeSantis in Florida and the governor in Mississippi going, no, we're going to stay open no matter what. And, you know, just t- talk to us a little bit about the human cost of these other factors. Sure. Um, I mean, one human factor that comes to mind um, immediately is the toll that all of this is having on our healthcare workers. I mean, I can't help but start there just because it's top of mind. I mean, my Facebook feed, my emails, my text messages are all filled with messages from my colleagues who are, I mean, I'm in a emergency position. And so my colleagues, a lot of them are ER docs and nurses and physician assistants and respiratory therapists. And they basically have all um, reconciled themselves with getting COVID-19. And it's just a question of when um, they're talking about intubating their colleagues and knowing that the nurse that they worked side by side with for 20 years is probably going to be dying in the ICU upstairs after contracting COVID-19. They're sleeping outside in their garage because they don't want to bring it home to their families. I mean, that's, you know, we, we talk about supplies. We can't, we can build another ventilator, but we can't build another doctor. You know, and so it's just I, I think about that as part of the human cost. And then the other human cost that I think we're seeing um, play out in Italy. But I don't think that Americans have quite understood how this would affect our national psyche here is that of rationing. I mean, we're a country that's not used to this. We don't talk about rationing on a regular basis. We think it's a bad word. Um, but that's what's going to happen. I mean, and it's not just with patients with coronavirus. If you are a patient in New York who has a heart attack now and you call 911, 911 may take hours to show up. And then by the time you go to the ER, you're going to be crammed into a hallway with you know, dozens of patients with coronavirus. And maybe you won't get seen because there just isn't the capacity to see you. And then we talk about rationing when it comes to ventilators and other supplies. I mean, this is what's going to happen here. I'd rather that we have these conversations in the light of day than when the provider is, when the nurse or the doctor is forced to make a decision about who gets that last ventilator. I mean, that's the human cost that we're seeing at that, I think at the most visceral level, just we're going to feel this soon. If the best case estimate is that 100,000 Americans are going to die in the next few months, and the worst case is, is 2 million Americans dying, then we are all going to know someone who has died from coronavirus in just a few months' time. And I think that in itself is the human cost. But then to your point, David, too, there's also the, I think so much of coronavirus has unveiled the underlying disparities and inequities that are in our healthcare system. What you all were referring to with lack of healthcare, lack of health insurance, um, the economic inequalities, but I think we're going to see it in a more in a, in another stark way too, which is that because we know coronavirus, COVID-19, impacts those most who have chronic medical conditions. I think we are going to see, we haven't quite seen this yet because this is so new in the US, but we are going to see that those who already face the greatest burdens of disparities are those who are going to suffer the most. 
So it's people of color, it's African-Americans, it's people who come from lower socioeconomic classes who have so many other factors weighing against them when it comes to the social determinants of health. They are going to be the ones hit hardest by coronavirus. It's communities like mine in Baltimore that are going to be hit the hardest. And I think we're going to see these disparities play out not only on that very visceral individual level, but also on a societal level that's going to just make it clear what kind of values we have in America and where we should be. I want to just ask if I could very briefly a follow-up question, because it strikes me that up to now, the past month, which took us from no coronavirus deaths to 5,000 plus coronavirus deaths, um, the locus of the coronavirus has been New York City. The story of the coronavirus has been New York and New Jersey primarily. We are now seeing other states, Florida, Michigan, I mean, after the small outbreak in Washington, but it, we're now seeing places like um, Florida, um, Michigan, um, where the, the number of cases is rising rapidly. And there are large parts of the country that have been off the radar that are just coming on the radar, Louisiana, some other Southern states and so forth. Is the character of this crisis, do you think, going to change substantially over the next couple of weeks as more places become like New York? Or do you think there's just something specially New York-y about New York? No, I think, I think a lot of places are going to be hit very, very hard. And those places, many of them are not seeing it coming. I think we're going to see, in particular, the rural South be impacted very hard. And these are places that already have pretty not great health outcomes. Um, they haven't expanded Medicaid. They don't have great social nets, um, uh, safety nets. And they also don't have very good health healthcare infrastructure. They don't have staff. They don't have hospitals. And patients there are going to be waiting a long time before they seek care, at which point they will be very ill. And I think we are going to see the impact also of waiting so long in some of these states to implement social distancing measures. Now, I hope I'm wrong. I mean, I hope that we're not going to see this impact um, throughout the country, but I think we will. And I think the inactions that some of these leaders are exhibiting will be on full display, no matter what type of political spin is put on. I'd like to ask you each a one minute question because we've got three minutes left. And of course, as Ed and Ryan know, usually when I ask a one-minute question, it's the biggest and most difficult one to answer. <laughs> um, but 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 the the one-minute question here is, you know, a lot of us, depending on your age, thought, for example, nine eleven might be the defining crisis of the adult life. There was a whole community of national security professionals from nine eleven taught the lessons and the follow-up to 9-11 and the Iraq war and so forth, taught the lessons of their time. There were, you know, prior to that, there were cold warriors. Prior to that, there were Vietnam War, um, uh, Arab folks who were shaped by that. This is one of those epical crises that define the character of a generation and that will inform all the decisions that follow it. 
whether it's an election decision or public policy decisions, life decisions that people make about whether they hug or kiss somebody or whether they wear a mask or whether they go out to a party or whether they wash their hands. What do you think the big takeaway is going to be that we're going to be left with in the wake of this crisis? Go to Ryan, Ed, then Lena. Just, you know, you throw out one thing. So, um, and I saw you had a great tweet thread about this today, David. I guess my concern is it goes one of two directions. And one is that we realize as a nation how interlinked we are as a society and that they, you know, the weakest link is we're as strong as the weakest link and therefore healthcare for all, for example, is understood as a basic right, not just for individuals, but that society doesn't survive well without it in the age of, for example, pandemics. And this is not a one-off uh, in terms of a pandemic. On the other hand, maybe it goes in a very cruel, cruel direction, which is what Lena was identifying. For me, the way it touches down is, we actually become a society that is even more cruel in its ability to discard members of society or segments of society uh, because of these like trade-offs between the economy and human life. And when we say human life, it's not just individuals, but it really is people of color, people in impoverished situations um, and things like that. And the rationing that goes with that, which way does rationing and leave us at the end of the day after this? Will it mean that we'll be a much more cold and calculated country that's uglier uh, that, than what existed before this, or is it the other? That's, what I, that's part of what I think about in terms of the epical effect of what we're going through now. Um, I think you need an ultraviolet lamp or something. <laughs> I, think, I think some seasonal affective disorder is, <laughs> is, is, is creeping in unavoidably into your life. Ed. Uh, so I, I would, um, I'd echo Ryan's ambivalence about which way this could go. You know, I mean, we could get a proper safety net out of this, or we could get a much crueler um, society. I have to sort of note, I know what others have, but the fact that um, that the feds have, have recorded the, the highest rate of background checks um, ever in the month, month of March for buying guns and ammunition, it's pretty disturbing. Um, but uh, let me just sort of say one thing, which is the larger geopolitical implication of this. I think China, very cynically, but opportunistically, is becoming the uh, face mask di diplomat. Um, it's, it's, um, it's filling a need there that countries receiving Chinese aid, some of which isn't actually aid, it's being sold, but Chinese are getting countries are getting these planes and shipments from China are not going to be worried too much at the moment about the fact that China spent three weeks sort of suppressing and covering up this virus. They're just going to be noticing it's coming from China and not from the United States. Um, and so I think the geopolitical void that Trump's um, scowl at the rest of the world has created, not just void, but a, a geopolitical sort of distancing from America that Trump is, is actively stoking, and that is, his political identity really is America first, is going to be dramatically accelerated by this global pandemic. And therefore, I think one of the lasting effects is going to be the accelerated shift of geopolitical gravity from West to East, for better or for worse. I, I suspect for worse, but this is what America apparently wants right now. 
Last word, Lena. Well, I'm an optimist. <laughs> so, you know, there's a saying in um, public health that public health saved your life today. You just don't know it. That there's no face of public health because by definition, we work when we prevented something from happening. And so there isn't a face of, of the effectiveness of public health. And that's why the budget for public health and the priorities for public health are always last because you just don't see us working. Well, I do hope that if it's anything that occurred out of this crisis and that's occurring out of this crisis, it's that we understand why preparedness is so important. We understand that public health ties into every aspect of our lives and that public health ultimately is a national security issue and an international security issue, an economic issue. And um, I hope that that at least will get us to focus on preventing the next pandemic, which will also come our way. I think that's a very important point. I don't think that any of the assessments we do after this is all over should minimize the fact that the next pandemic is on the way. I should point out also that the National Hurricane Center predicted um, that over the course of the next several months as we enter hurricane season, we are likely to have more category four and five hurricanes, three or four more, than we do in a normal season. So we're going to have both these things at once, and it's something to keep an eye on. Uh, this has been a great, great discussion. I'm extremely grateful to the three of you for uh, joining us. I know our listeners will be extremely grateful to you guys for joining us. Uh, we try to do this a couple of times a week, two or three times a week, and we encourage you to go and subscribe to Deep State Radio wherever you get your podcasts. You found it here, obviously. And go to the dsrnetwork.com. Uh, for more information about podcasts and other things that we are doing. Uh, and we will try to um, uh, expand the services that we've got over the course of the next several months and create more uh, interactive forums. Um, and we'll, we'll tell you more about that um, in, the, in, the, in the weeks ahead. In the meantime, thank you, Lena. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you, Ed. And uh, we'll see you all again very soon. In the meantime, uh, stay healthy.